today's carol and the scripture behind it. Uh, I'd like to, for you to think with me for just a minute about some of the feelings or emotions that we have around, around Christmas time. So like if I, if I were to poll the room, for example, and just ask, what are, what are your feelings about Christmas? You know, I'd probably get a mixed, a mixed bag. Uh, for some, you would say it is the most wonderful time of the year. Maybe kids especially would say this. Uh, but you would say, yeah, I mean, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm full of anticipation and wonder and joy. Uh, but others might say, mm, not so much. Uh, Christmas is stressful. It's really, really busy. It's overhyped. Or it's lonely. But you know, the funny thing is, for everybody who feels that way, there's also this like additional layer of guilt that you feel for feeling bad around Christmas time. You know, Christmas is supposed to be a time of celebration and you feel even worse for not being happy, right? And this is kind of the plot to most modern Christmas movies. Like there's a scroogey, grinchy, cranky character that has to go through some ordeal to rediscover the magic and joy of, of Christmas time. Right? This is the Santa Claus, the Grinch, even the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special is basically this plot line. So at Christmas, you know, you're supposed to feel happy. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus for crying out loud. Be happy, people. You know. But what if I were to poll you about your feelings uh, instead of around Christmas? What if I were to ask you about your feelings about Judgment Day? The last day. The day where God rips off the curtains to this world and shows up to do final accounts with every man and woman who's ever lived. What emotions would you use to describe your feelings about that? Nervousness, some trepidation, maybe straight up fear, doubt, disappointment that your fun is over now, like a teenager whose mom and dad pulled back into the driveway after you just had the house to yourself for a couple of hours. You, know, you see that the second coming of Jesus is more fraught, even more fraught for us perhaps than his first coming. Which, you know, in some ways I guess kind of makes sense if you think about it. If we're going to be judged by an utterly holy and righteous God, you know, that could make you a little nervous. Plus, we kind of had plans for our lives and stuff that we wanted to get to before God just called time out on everything. So what if I told you now that joy to the world, that happiest of Christmas carols, was not even written to be a hymn for Christmas Day, but for Judgment Day. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. He rules the world with truth and grace. All this was written as a picture of the grown-up, glorified Jesus reigning in power, not for the baby in the manger. So Isaac Watts, the author of Joy to the World, he wrote it as a poem while reflecting on Psalm 98, which I'll read in just a second, but not from the nativity stories in Luke 2 or anywhere like that. And the poem basically got buried in a stash of Isaac Watts' poems on many other psalms until Lowell Mason, uh, an American composer, took the second half of Isaac Watts' poem on Psalm 98 and put the lyrics to music and said, you know what, this would be awesome around Christmas time and make tons of money off of it. No, I don't know if he said that or not, but he did put the lyrics to music and it became a, you know, an instant classic. So there's your conversation starter to use with friends 
uh, this week or during the holidays to say, hey, did you know Joy to the World was not even written as a Christmas carol? Which is almost as good as the conversation started from two weeks back, which is, did you know that Old Holy Night was written by an atheist? So, let me read Psalm 98, and you can see what you think about it. See if you hear some of the lines of, the familiar lines of Joy to the World bleeding out from this, this psalm. Psalm 98, a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Maybe you heard some of the lines from Joy to the World in there, but Here's what I want you to catch. Here's what I want you to hear. What did Isaac Watts walk away from that psalm about the return of Jesus to this world? What was the one thing that he wanted to say to us about this psalm? It's this, that the return and reign of Jesus equals joy, 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 joy. Now, why would he say that? Why, why would that be? Why would the return and reign of Jesus be cause for total joy for those who are ready? Well, maybe it's just me. You know, I, I just don't think we're totally convinced that Jesus' return will be the happiest moment that you could imagine. So, I think we can ask Psalm 98 and the song, Joy to the World, three questions that will help turn our hearts more fully to believe that the return of Christ can be the occasion for greatest joy. So here's my three questions. One, is God really all that joyful? Is God really all that joyful? Question two, are God's judgments really all that joyful? God's judgments, are they really all that joyful? And then three, will God's return really be all that joyful, his return. So, is God really all that joyful? Let's start in Psalm 98, verse 1. It commands people to sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. Verse 4 says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. In verses 8 and 9, at the end, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes. So this is how the carol starts, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the world, the Lord is here. The world should be happy. Every heart, prepare in room. Let heaven and nature sing. So here's the question. Do you, in your inner like mental reflexes, do you immediately associate God with joy? 
If I were to do a word association test on you right now, I say God, you would say, what would you say? There would be maybe several words that come to your mind. How many other words would you think of before you think of the word joy? It's much more natural for us to think of God as austere, stern, aloof, and serious. You know, even loving might come out for some, you might say love or loving. But for many of us, we might think of God as loving just out of mere duty. You know, it's his job. He's God. He's supposed to love, you know. But what about deep-seated, full-bodied joy? Do you associate him with that at all? I suppose I should try to fill in our understanding of a word like joy, kind of a loaded word. According to my six-year-old son, joy is like happiness, except better. (laughs) I think that's pretty good. You know, you can see joy on the faces of our kids, especially, and in their laughter, when they just lose it for five minutes over words like bacon bits. Watch this. And this goes on and on for quite some time. You know, you can hear it in the voices of kids, uh, grown-ups actually, who are still kids at heart, that love Christmas even more than Buddy the Elf loves Christmas. Merry Christmas! (laughs) And I realized today that I think I may have actually shown this before to you all, and um, I don't regret that. It could become an annual tradition. Who knows? Um, But you know, think of... Think of the deepest belly laugh you've ever had that you thought it was going to split your sides open. Think of the sweetest kiss you've ever received from a loved one. Think of the precious coos from the mouth of a baby or your most meaningful accomplishment in life, the thing you're most proud of, the most delectable dessert you've ever tasted, the greatest piece of music that's ever moved you, the reunion that you've most long awaited. But joy runs even deeper and more serious than sheer delight. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that joy is like a deep longing. It's like a stab or a pang of beauty that overtakes us even to tears sometimes. And we say things like, "I, I could cry tears of joy. Or I'm so happy, I could cry. Why tears with joy? Well, it's the deepest perhaps the deepest good emotion that we have. So where do you think all that comes from? You see, these experiences, they're just the sunbeams that point us back to the sun to channel C.S. Lewis again. God is the source, the joy behind all the wonderful joys that you've experienced in life. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that God and joy, they go together. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. When God's around, there's enough joy to go around. Or think about Galatians chapter 5, verses 22, the famous fruit of the Spirit passage. It says the result of someone's life being filled with the Spirit of God is what? Well, it's love, but right on the heels of that, 
It's joy. Or if you think about Jesus' very first miracle, do you know what his first miracle was? John chapter 2, he's at a wedding. The wedding runs out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine. He shows up as the Lord of the feast who brings joy to people's lives. You see, it's like his trademark miracle, his calling card. Even on the night of his death, Jesus is motivated to go to the cross because of the joy that's on the other side of it for him. Professor Michael Reeves writes, what was Jesus like? Well, anything but boring and anemic. Here was a man with towering charisma, running over with life. Men, women, children, sick and mad, rich and poor, they found him so magnetic, some just wanted to touch his clothes. Kinder than summer, he befriended the rejects and gave hope to the hopeless. His closest friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with a groom at a wedding. You see, Jesus is the Lord of joy, and he's the final word on what God is like, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. It's not like Jesus the Son is the jovial member of the Trinity, while the Father above is somehow more cross or stern. You see, God is the happiest being in the universe. So, what do you need to do with that, that information? Well, for starters, I guess you could repent of small thoughts about God. You could see him differently, see him rightly as the God of joy. And maybe also, if you're finding all your joy these days in just the sunbeams of life rather than the sun itself, then stop. Give thanks. Look at the sunbeam. Thank you, God, for this beautiful blessing you've brought into my life. But always trace it back to the source and worship the God who gives beautiful and good gifts to us. So, is God really all that joyful? According to the scriptures, yes, more than you know. But what about his judgments? Are God's judgments really all that joyful? I mean, it's one thing to say that God himself is joyful, but what about him coming back in judgment over the world? I mean, is that really a good thing? But did you hear the emphasis that Psalm 98, verses eight through nine, uh, it puts on this joyful reaction of all creation at the judgments of God. Again, verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Or as Isaac Watts put it, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Now, why would the final judgments of Jesus be cause for joy? I mean, what about the lake of fire that some are said to be thrown into when Jesus is sorting out the righteous from the unrighteous? I mean, some of the questions that come to my mind as I think about Judgment Day are, you know, God, can't you just show up and forgive everybody? I mean, maybe make a little time out for some who need a stern talking to, but nothing so serious as eternal hell and all that, right? But then again, I wonder if this is my default emotional setting because frankly, I'm a relatively privileged Western modern person who has not had terrible atrocities committed against me in my lifetime. 
uh, Yale theologian Miroslav Volf. He was born in Croatia, and he lived through the nightmare years of ethnic strife in the former Yugoslavia. He writes this. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. British pastor Mark Maynell tells a similar conversation that he had with a man named Imma, who was from the Dominican Republic of the Congo that was forced to flee to Uganda on foot, running for his life with his wife and three daughters. And Imma told Mark Maynell, he said, you know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God, because I will never see justice in this world. So if there's no judgment day, there's no joy for this guy's world and so many others. There's no joy for our world without a day of judgment. Think about it. I mean, if you have been grossly mistreated and sinned against and this world fails to offer you justice, I mean, what, what hope do you have? The whole idea behind a court system is that we trust that there is an authority somewhere who will deal justly and fairly with wrongdoing so that we don't have to go all Batman vigilante and start taking vengeance into our own hands. You know, that there's a judge who will have insight into our story and see what's really going on and do what is right. Sometimes this happens, many times it does not. But what if there was a higher court, a final court that nothing slipped past? What if there was a wiser judge who saw every black eye, every deep betrayal, every bitter desire, every venomous word, and every lonely tear? Wouldn't it be a good thing for him to finally and fully arbitrate over the world in perfectly gracious and true and wise judgment. I think that would be good and cause for great joy. So the song says, joy to the world when the Savior reigns. And I think this means a couple of things for you and me today. First of all, when we are wronged, even deeply wronged, we can let go of the need to be judge, jury, and executioner. We can hold back from repaying evil for evil and find solace in the truth that one day His honor, the Lord, will take the bench and settle all that needs to be settled once for all. But then also, secondly, we have to realize that none of us are exempt from this court date. 
I mean, it's not like everyone else in the world who's bad except for you has to stand before the judgment seat of God. None of us are truly innocent. And so our only hope is to plead guilty and cling to the cross of Christ where we can be declared innocent. Because while God will not overlook our sin, He loves and longs to pardon us for it. You see, the wrath and justice of God, it doesn't diminish His love in the slightest. In fact, the wrath of God makes the love of God all the more astonishing. Because on the cross, Jesus was willing to bear the wrath of God out of love for you. I mean, what did it cost for Jesus to bring joy to the world? It cost him all the sorrow that you can imagine. And yet he endured it so that when he comes again, you can sing with joy instead of hide in fear, confident that for everyone who's in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation left for you. The joy to the world, for it is a Savior who reigns, not just a king, not just a judge, but a Savior who reigns. So for all who will prepare Him room, His coming will be a joy and not a terror. But for those who did not love His first coming and what He came to give you through His death and life and resurrection, His second coming will not be a joy for you. But for all who have loved His appearing, his return will truly be the most joyful moment of their lives. So my last question, will God's return really be all that joyful? Is it something you can look forward to or is it kind of the ultimate cosmic bummer? Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Okay, so this is where modern country music has not really helped us so much. I will read and not sing because the songs are, these are kind of catchy, let's be honest. Lord, when I die, I want to live on the outskirts of heaven, where there's dirt roads for miles, hay in the fields and fish in the river, where there's dogwood trees and honeybees and blue skies and green grass forever. Lord, when I die, I want to live on the outskirts of heaven. Okay, um, time out. For the sake of charity, the song does point out the goodness of the created world. You know, I mean, the things God made are, are awesome. And maybe if the author understood, the, like really understood the biblical teaching about the new creation, new heavens, new earth, physical place, not just halos and harps floating on clouds, maybe he wouldn't have said what he said in the song. Maybe, just to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because I don't think you actually do want to live on the outskirts of heaven. It's not such a great place from what I understand. Um, but more recently, and actually our former North Waker, Benjamin Quinn, just wrote a blog post for Southeastern on this, this song. Uh, it goes like this. I hope you hit those gold streets on two wheels. I hope your mansion in the sky's got a 10-acre field. With some mud and some hubs, you can lock in, make some thunder, make some wonder how you got in. Hide your beer, hide your clear from the man upstairs. Crank it loud, hold it down till I get there. And when I do, I hope you got some new stories to tell. Till then, give heaven some hell. Okay, I find less redeeming qualities here, but, um, you know, these, these songs totally misunderstand Jesus, and they totally misunderstand heaven, and they misunderstand that when Jesus returns, He is where the life of the party is. 
not in some hidden heavenly basement bash. At the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it compares the return of Christ to the best of wedding parties. It says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And then in Revelation 21, it gives you a scene from the return of Jesus that is to me far more compelling than mudding in your 10-acre field, which is great, as great as that is. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What will it be like for the hands of Jesus to touch your deepest wounds, to wipe away every single tear, and to tell you that from now on, everything is going to be okay, that all shall be well, and to feel the weight of that relief to know once for all, like really, everything's going to be all right. No more let sins or sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is sweet relief. I remember one time as a teenager, I was maybe 14 years old, and I was hunting with my grandfather uh, in a really big track of South Georgia swamp. It was the kind of place that was easy to get lost in, the spoiler alert. And uh, there's these low areas, you know, in the, in the swamp uh, called sloughs, where it's just like cypress knobs and, and water and around it oak trees for miles and miles. And it kind of all looks the same eventually. And my grandfather and I, as we were hunting, we decided to split up. And he had hunted out there many, many times over the years, so he went one way. And then he gave me a very simple route to walk along a trail in a circle that would bring me back to our truck. So he laid it out for me, told me where to go, and asked me if I understood where we were going, which I really didn't, but I didn't care to tell him that at the time. I figured I would just figure it out. You know, I'm a big boy. I can handle this. Well, it turns out pride comes before a fall because I got lost. I went too far off the trail, and when I tried to get back on the trail, I could not find it. So I began to walk uh, in the direction that I kind of thought the truck was, and I figured I'd get there in time before it was dark. But the further I went, the further I was which is a deep statement if you think about it. Um, the, the further I went, the further I got. And within the next hour, I was gonna, it was going to be getting dark, and the wild hogs that we were hunting would soon become the hunters, at least in my mind. And, you know, I think they tell you in these wilderness scenarios, you know, rule number one, do not panic. I panicked. I began to walk a little faster, trying to find the trail, trying to find my way back. Then I began to jog. And I began to run. No sign of the trail. Everything looked the same. I think I started going in circles. But we did have a signal worked out ahead of time. Whereas if, if I shot my rifle like three or four times, back to back to back, my grandfather would know. I got myself lost. 
And he would, you know, reply with a signal so I could find, find my way back. And so I, I pulled out my rifle and I, I shot it into this tree nearby. Bang, bang, bang. This poor tree. It, t- it got a lot of, there's a lot of feelings coming out into this tree. And uh, a few seconds later, I heard one of the best sounds I ever have heard. A gunshot. <laughs> a few minutes after that, I heard a car horn honk. And bit by bit, out of the woods, I found my way. Honk, go this way. A few minutes later, honk, find my way that way. And when I finally made it back to the truck and plopped down in the passenger seat of my grandpa's F-150 next to him, uh, this is a proud moment in my life, especially as a 14-year-old boy, but I just lost it. (laughs) I mean, I just started crying because there was this cathartic release from what felt like hours of wandering alone and afraid in the woods. What is it gonna be like though to unload a lifetime of fear and anxiety and sorrow and uncertainty, grief, failure, sin, heartache, regret, to unload them all into the arms of Jesus as he wipes away every tear that comes out and tells us all will be well. Everything, and I mean everything, is going to be okay. You see, joy holds the final word in God's story. I was reading a a parenting book by a guy named Dan Allender last year. It's called How Children Raise Their Parents, which is a great title. And there's a chapter in the book on on the importance of play for kids and adults, but the beginning of the chapter Uh, Dan Allender makes this kind of big theological statement about play and celebration, why it should be part of every family's life. And I don't know, this has just stuck with me. Let me read it to you. He said, the alpha of existence is creation and the omega will be Christ's return and the recreation of the heavens and the earth, the banishment of evil and the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride, the church. The beginning involves God's playful creativity and the end is a party hosted by God where we will eat, drink, and celebrate for at least two bazillion millennia. But what about the time in between? How is to one to think of a a dear friend's body withering under cancer or a bitter divorce or unspeakable evils like the Holocaust, the rape of the Armenian innocents, the death of 20 million Russians during Stalin's programs in the same breath as the word play? Such horror is not play, but evil does not own the beginning, nor does it possess the end. God does. And if we believe he is a sovereign and good God, then even the darkest part of this war is ultimately a prelude to a day of full-bodied play that will be ours for eternity. Evil and sorrow does not own the beginning, nor will it possess the end. God does. And that means joy does. There's a place in the the Lord of the Rings in the last book, The Return of the King. Doesn't make it into the movie, but it's in the book, and it's an awesome scene where our hero hobbits, you know, Frodo and Sam, they're stumbling through the evil wasteland of Mordor, Mordor trying to destroy the ring. And Sam Gamgee at one point looks up through a dark, misty, foggy night and sees a lone, bright star up above him. 
Then Tolkien writes this. He says, the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. The hope of Christianity is even better than this, though. It's not just that there's light and high beauty far beyond uh, out there where evil can't touch it while we down here just have to suffer on. The hope of Christianity is that light and high beauty has come into our world in Jesus Christ and will one day overtake the shadow. The beginning and the end of the story belongs to God and thus it belongs to joy. And in Him, I can tell you with a glad heart, everything is going to be okay. So, should we sing Joy to the World at Christmas time after all? Well, if it's true that the story of our world ends in pure joy when Jesus returns, then his first coming is a down payment and a promise of joy to come. So I pray for you, I pray for you guys that the promise of joy on the last day would be enough to bring you joy on this day. That it would be enough for you to rejoice this season of Christmas even though the immediate contours of your life right now may give you every reason not to. And I pray that the star of Bethlehem would be for you a shaft clear and cold and pierce into the shadows of your life to remind you that this present darkness is a small and passing thing. There is light and high beauty that will not only outlast, but will overtake the darkness of our world. All shall be well for the heart that has prepared room for him. So what about you today? And would you say that you have a sense of confidence about the return of God to this world? That it will be your greatest joy? Or are you still unsure, you know, unsettled about the end? I would just want to say that you can be sure because the baby in a manger became a man on a cross to bear your sin and sorrow so that in him and in him alone, you could have his righteousness and his joy. Let's pray.